research shows that inside our we groups, our we relationships, we trust people more, we like people more, we choose to cooperate with them more, and bottom line, we choose to say yes to them more frequently. You're listening to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores human behavior and thinking. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore life through a behavioral science lens with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. And today we bring you one of the greats in behavioral science, our friend, the godfather of influence himself, Dr. Robert Cialdini. This is Bob's third time with us. He was first interviewed on the show back in 2018 in episode 50, and he then joined me on stage at our Nudge at North conference earlier this year in 2021. We were very excited to have him back again and to have a chance to talk with him about the new edition of his groundbreaking book, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. I'm sure many of you have read Influence. It is one of the all-time classics of behavioral science, and its principles are still valid and probably even more important today than when the book was first issued in 1984. But this new, revised edition is more than just a simple update. It is a total rewrite of the book, adding in new research, focusing in on how the principles of influence are successfully employed online, adding in readers' comments and experiences, and, and adding in a completely new seventh principle of influence. This is a really significant update that not only provides more insight into influence, but also how you can ethically apply it to your life. If you have not already purchased it, we recommend you go out and do it now. Full-heartedly agree with that statement, Tim. Full-heartedly. Absolutely. So our conversation with Bob zigzagged from why he did the update to the new seventh principle to how to help increase vaccine uptake to how Bob now has now joined the ranks of musicians. He's a songwriter, Kurt. Tim, and I know you were super <laughs> excited about that part. Damn sure I was. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you were. Yeah. I, actually, I knew you were. I wasn't even figured. This was That was just a, a key thing. All right. We want to remind everyone listening that we create these free weekly podcasts and sometimes twice weekly podcasts to help bring new ideas and applications of behavioral science to you, our community of listeners, so you can use this knowledge to help live a better, more productive, and happy life. Yeah, it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of money to be able to do that. And if you are able to, we would be very thankful if you could leave us a review share this episode with a friend, or help us out financially by contributing to our Patreon site. Any one of these actions would go a long way to help make sure that we can continue to bring these insights to you. As always, we appreciate any help that you can do. And with that, please find a comfortable spot to relax, have a big steaming cup of influence, and enjoy our conversation with Bob Cialdini. Robert Cialdini, welcome to Behavioral Groups. Well, thank you, Tim. I'm very glad to be with you and uh, looking forward to our exchange. You are always such a fantastic guest. <laughs> we are excited. And as always, we start with a speed round. So, Bob, first speed round question. Are you a dog or a cat person? Dog. Oh, that was simple. Nice. Quick. There you go. 
it's that it's was- that uh you know at parties i'm not a very good interactor so dogs just they just hang out with you <laughs> you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to bring them in to your aura they're they're there cats yeah. much more independent <laughs> No kidding. I I couldn't agree more. Okay. You have been called the godfather of influence. So our question for you is which godfather movie do you think was best? Godfather one. Oh, 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 wow. Not even close. And and you know, we we had a part of this that said, and we wanted to let you know that this question, unlike our other speed round questions, has a correct answer that you will be judged upon. (laughs) And you won. You definitely won. It was two. It's there's no, there's no, no comparison. I mean, no, two was yeah. just outstanding. Oh, fantastic! So. Yeah, it it provided the context for the rest of uh, for the series. I mean, it, it went a little mm-hmm. prequel, right? And you got to see the dynamics, the human dynamics that led to the culmination that you saw in the other movies. Uh, yeah, and it was yeah. just beautifully done the way that they interspersed those flashbacks with the present day, and then having the the first movie before it, you know, allowed you them to kind of not have to give all the details with it because you kind of understood what was going on. Again, it was just a masterful movie, and then they should have just stopped after that and not done three, in my own opinion, but that's okay. It was the first movie that Robert De Niro and Al Pacino were in together, but didn't ever meet because <laughs> because they were in such totally different scenes and never never crossed paths. I always thought that was fascinating, but apparently unwelcome at this point. So, yeah. <laughs> <Kurt>. <laughs> all right, third speed round question. So, what is it like being lettuce in a Nobel laureate sandwich? It was trepidatious. Let me. <laughs> <laughs> I I found myself watching my grammar. <laughs> oh, wow. I could see it. I could see that. So for those of you who don't know, Bob was on a panel with uh, Richard Thaler and Danny Kahneman at the BSPA conference last week, which was by, it was fantastic. And Oh my gosh, it was just a wonder, wonderful opportunity to see these three, you with those two. It was just absolutely wonderful. And man, uh, the, the brain power between all three of you and then Shankar as the host, it was crazy. So yeah, yeah, yes, that was fantastic. Okay, last speed round question. So in an online shopping experience, is it better to have someone rate you with five stars Overall, or is it better to have an overall rating of maybe 4.6 or so? Another clear answer. It's 4.6. In fact, there's a sweet spot range of stars that produces the greatest conversions from prospect to purchaser online. It is between 4.2 and 4.7. Below 4.2. Two, people start wondering about the competence and the features and the qualities of what you're offering. Above 4.7, they start wondering about the trustworthiness of the information. Mm. There are uh, people being paid to write those views. And, and that, as a result, will cause them to be likely to say, this might be too good to be true and step back from it. But inside 4.2 to 4.7, that's your sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So we need a few people to, to rate down 
behavioral groups then, Tim. I think that's going to be a problem. Yeah, just don't be afraid of those three point, uh, three star, or four star ratings. They, those those do you some good. Yeah. It doesn't feel that way. Let me tell you. Right. Yeah. No. I, I know it's just being in uh, a university professor when at the end of the semester you get the ratings from people and you know in the classes that were positively rated the great majority are what you want to see the ones you dwell on. Yes. Are the ones that didn't like it who had <laughs> these and those are the ones that beset you for days yeah it is so true so true when you think about all right 20 great reviews one kind of so-so review all right you should that should outweigh by significant factor that so-so review and yet it never does it is always that one is the one that you know, when Tim and I get back on, you know, and we start talking, it's like, oh, what, what was that person thinking? You know, and what did we do wrong? And <laughs> what all did we do wrong? Things. Yeah. Right. right. So. so, Bob, we're here to talk to at least to start a conversation with the new version of Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. Fantastic. Highly recommended. Everybody should read this. It's a great read. You really went above and beyond the original edition in so many ways. But what was the impetus? to go so far beyond the original. Why? What got you moving in this direction? It was an interest. That's a really interesting question because I was torn. The previous edition had been selling very well, uh, just and subject to this, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. (laughs) Right. right. But I remembered something my grandfather used to say, a quote that he favored. It wasn't his, but he favored this quote. It was, if you want things to stay the same, things are going to have to change around here. <laughs> it's just brilliant. You know, wow. you can't w- sit on your laurels. Like, the world is going to spin by you and, and you'll be irrelevant. And there were a lot of new studies, new findings, new insights from persuasion science that I was able to, I had been cataloging since the previous edition. and. There were there was definitely time for inclusion of those new insights. But I would say the biggest factor, there were two. One was the feedback we would get from readers was, again, like you say, mostly positive. But one of the things that I really did listen to that was they, they said there's something missing here. Mm. We're compelled by the concepts that you're talking about as universal principles of influence, scarcity and authority and social proof. We, we got your message. We see the import of it. But you know what you haven't done? You haven't told us how to harness them. What words we, should we use? What specific techniques or practices that you could out, outline for us to produce the force, to, to release the force of those principles into the situation where we're using it. So there's a lot more in this one about exact wording to employ and the benefits and, and disadvantages of saying it poorly, triggering the principle by not using the right language to truly resonate uh, in your audience members' minds with that principle. You know, it looked like you were re- you were already sort of on that path with persuasion, that, you know, there, there was much more 
almost prescriptive kind of language in that book than there was in, in Influence. So I guess in some ways, it, it really kind of makes sense. You were already on that journey. That's right. We had been getting that kind of feedback. So when I wrote Persuasion, I incorporated that advice as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so I like the the moving from a theoretical into that application piece. That's where Tim and I, you know, our, our worlds yes. revolve in this application of these. And I think most of our listeners are doing that. So I think that's a wonderful reason for listeners, A, go out and get this the new version. I know you've read the, the first version probably multiple times, but this has more. So what made the decision to update this as opposed to an entirely new book? Because there is enough information in there probably to just do a different book about this and bring in, and we'll talk about the the new seventh principle that you talk about here in a minute, but what was the impetus to just revise as opposed to a whole new book? Well, I'll give you an example from an online platform, you know, e-commerce platform study. There was a study done of 6,700 of these platforms and the A-B tests that they employed to move people into con- what they call conversion, you know, from mm-hmm. a prospect to purchaser uh, of whatever product or service was available. And uh, they looked at 29 different factors that might have, and looked at the effectiveness of each of those factors in the ability to create these conversions. And th- some of them were technological. Is there a search function on the site? Right? Uh, some of them were economic. Do they offer free delivery? Some of them were persuasive. Uh, is there a call to action line at the end of, of your appeal and so on? They had 29 of them. The top six were the six principles of influence. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it seemed to me that those were still the things that if you wanted to move people most powerfully, I should be talking about. But I should be talking about the newest research within those domains that allows you, as we've been talking, to harness those uh, sources of those pools of uh, motivational energy that are inherent in each of those principles. And uh, not only uh, how to trigger them, but also how to move beyond what I was saying in the previous editions about where and how to make them more effective, not just to trigger them more effectively, but to elevate their effectiveness. I'll give you an example on social proof, which is you know one of the mainstays. Uh, just the, We prefer to say yes to those things that we have evidence that a lot of other people around us like us are saying yes to. It's a good way to uh, undermine our uncertainty, to reduce our uncertainty about what we should do. But one of the questions I would often get was, but what if I don't have social proof? What if I'm a startup? What if I have a new idea? What if I have something that is an initiative, let's say, inside my organization that I really need get the buy-in from the people around me to before I can move it up the ladder, up the hierarchy, how do I use social proof under those circumstances? And I would always say, don't use social proof. Use <laughs> <laughs> one of the others. Yes. <laughs> if it's brand new, use scarcity. You know, you know. Yeah. So, but I'm not saying that any longer because of some oh. research that's been done 
it, my team did some of the early research. There's another team at Stanford that was doing it at the same time. Without our knowledge, we were we we were doing the same thing uh, uh, independently, and we were finding the same result. That is, if you don't have a lot of popularity, if you don't have a lot of, let's say, market share, right? Because you're so new, but you've got a good idea, right? Here's what you can show. You can show the trend to where you are now. If you show that there is a trajectory upward for this thing, because it's a good idea, you do have some buy-in. You do have you know, people uh, doing this. If you can do that, right, you get a new form of social proof mm-hmm. because people project the function of that trend into the future. This is what we do. If we've got three data points, we think the next one is going to be similar in an upward trajectory. So what you have going for you now is future social proof. (laughs) It's something you don't have without a trend. Or without telling people about the trend, right? They will project the next and the next step into the future. Now, where you have some kind of more substantial popularity to point to, you don't even have to get it. You just have to set up the trend, which, if you have a good idea, is going to actually eventuate. Oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> I love hearing the that even the startups, even the small emerging idea can take advantage of the principles, even the principle of social proof. Right. Uh, we, we, we absolutely need that. Let's, if we could, turn over to one of the big differentiators, one of the most important contributions, I think, in, in the new book is the seventh principle, that yeah. of unity. Can you just spend a little time talking about that? Yes. Um, So what unity involves from the standpoint of persuasion science, from the standpoint of a communicator who wants people to move in his or her direction. If as a communicator, you can arrange for people to see you as one of them, not just similar to them in tastes or preferences or styles, but comparable to them in membership in a group that they use to identify themselves with the groups that have you you feel a strong social identity with all right all barriers to influence come down the research mm-hmm. shows that inside our we groups our we relationships we trust people more we like people more we choose to cooperate with them more. And bottom line, we choose to say yes to them more frequently. Right? So if that is, that's the notion of it. And it, it's highlighted in what we're seeing now in terms of tribalism all around us. Right? Yeah. Political, regional, religious, ethnic, racial tribes are forming and we are getting people inside those we groups being loyal to one another rather than the truth 
Well, you brought up something about that, right? There's better or greater benefit for people to allow a lie within the in-group than to point that out. Is Did I get that right? You did. It's It, it has to do with a new f- new color of lie. You know, we talk about white lies, uh, things that you say to people that are designed to make them feel better. Oh, no, really, that outfit <laughs> or hairstyle or nose ring uh, <laughs> looks great on you. Right? <laughs> it's, it's what Tim and I do almost yeah, every all day. The time. Yeah, there all we the go. <laughs> yeah. And then there are black lies, which are designed to harm that person where you, you, you try. And so and it might be if we extend this. And if you'll go on your date with my ex-boyfriend with wearing this, he'll love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there are blue lies that have components of each sort. They're designed to harm and to help simultaneously, but different groups. They're designed to promote the reputation or the standing of your group and the members of the group who are with you, of you, right, and undermine the reputation and outcomes of the people who are in the out group, right? And they involve things like, as research has shown, a willingness to lie about a misdeed from a politician of your party, right, uh, to cover it up, lie about it, right? If that person is indeed a member of your party rather than another, so loyalty within the group outdistances truth, mm-hmm. outdistances a normal kind of dimension along which we decide on what is the morally responsible thing to do it's not in this instance to be aligned with truth it's to be supportive of one of our own so there's that support that comes through the process of feeling ethically that it's ethically superior to be loyal than to be honest and is that What's the rationale or have you do you have a hypothesis around why that is so prevalent? And is it a confirmation bias component that is included in it? Is it the we talked with somebody talking about the long about lying and the the idea that, well, the long term benefit. So, yeah, yeah, if I'm, you know, and they were talking about Boris uh, Johnson and, you know, some very outlandish lies that that were kind of caught and people were saying, no, it doesn't matter because in the long run those policies that he's implementing are the ones that I want to see in there. So that doesn't matter. Have you looked at at some of the underlying reasons behind it? It turns out that's a bullseye question because the (laughs) researchers looked at it and they found that the thing that mediated that preference was that it was self-oriented and the idea that that person's downfall would reflect on me Mm. as a member of that group. I'm of that person. And as a consequence, I have a quote in the the book called, the we is the many me's. Mm. You identify, you truly identify with those people and you see these mergers. There's this great test measure of, 
tell me how bonded you feel or how aligned or actually how overlapping you feel your identity with another person. And they do it with these uh, circles. And you choose the pair of circles that best reflects who you are with this person, right? And what they find is inside those groups, you get the overlap, you get the identity overlap. So those people really do represent you. And if they fail, you fail. If mm. they're dishonest, you're dishonest because you're of them, right? So that seemed to be the mediator of the effect inside that study we just talked about, why you would lie to protect a, a politician from a group, you know, a political group that you you identified strongly with, it's because it would harm you. So one of the things that I think that leads to, as you talked about the tribalism and various different aspects of this, is we, we are looking at the United States right now, looking at vaccine hesitancy, and, and a lot of that overlap comes from some of those political parties because they denounced some of the science that was behind the pandemic in the first place and transference over to that. So is there a way of being able to overcome that that group? For instance, I wore my Packer jersey today because <laughs> I knew that you are a, a Green Bay Packer fan to bring some of that piece. So that's a different group than, say, the political group that is different than the state group, you know, that that I can feel a part of or the the business organization. Are there ways yeah. of using unity to maybe overcome some of this so it's not Yes. Republican, Democratic, but maybe United States or world or some others? Well, yes, I think we do have to be careful that we segment the, the resistors or the, the people who are hesitant. They're hesitant for different kinds of reasons. Yeah. People who are not certain about the efficacy or the safety of the drug or people uh, who don't have the, the time, haven't made the time to go and get it. And then there are people who are really resistant to the idea because their group is resistant, <clears throat> excuse me. And here's what, uh, there's some research for that latter group that you're, I think what, who you're talking about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who, who identify uh, against it. And that is a particular practice within, those, within persuasion science that's called the presentation of the convert communicator. This is a person who they can't, disregard, they can't dismiss, they can't diminish as, oh, that's not me. This is somebody who not just is similar to them in socioeconomic status or region of the country or something, but is used to believe what they believed. You know, and you have these communicators, you've seen them, uh, they're very effective when uh, they're uh, identified and then raised to the uh, consciousness. They say, I believe that too. I used, to. and then let's say it's having to, having to do with vaccines or something like that. And, and then my grandmother died of this because she wouldn't wear a mask or she wouldn't get, or my wife did, my spouse did, or my grown daughter did. And, and it's just heart-wrenching. But it's so genuine and so connected to the group. Again, you you can't dismiss those people out of hand as, oh, they're not me. They are you. They just have a new piece of information that you didn't get access to. 
right? And they're providing a new perspective based on that information. So that's that's what I would recommend there. Marshalling that evidence and then making it prominent. So building that unity first and then bringing that the 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 new perspective from that that person who has been of yes. us. Okay. That's that's precisely the sequence in which this person describes his or her uh, membership in this group uh, of hesitant or, or resistant individuals and the, the reasons for it, and then says something that takes the legs out from under it. I'm curious, just to continue to pursue this for just a sec, Donald Trump acknowledged that he did get a vaccine. Mike Pence got vaccinated. They could be considered to some degree, I mean, they're insiders within a particular group that has been largely hesitant uh, about vaccines. And I'm wondering, in your mind, why hasn't that had a more powerful effect on on the rest of the group, the fact that primary political leaders of that group admitted that they got vaccines? Neither of them ever said, I used to believe that it was the wrong thing to do. And I've gotten evidence to change my mind. Yeah. That I think is the key piece here because there has been, I mean, you know, it was that they were, they've talked about it. It's been out there. It's been pushed, but it still hasn't made that change. I didn't like that. It's the, the, look, I've changed because of this evidence and that never happened. And so that's the, that's one of the distinguishing aspects of what you were just talking about with the presentation of content, uh, convert communicators. I had to write that down. Right. And it never (laughs) diminishes the wisdom of not doing it mm. for the people that you're talking to it's just that you didn't have you didn't have all the information when you made that decision it was the decision i made on the basis of all the information i had that was a good decision <laughs> but now we have a new piece of information here that's changed my mind so we're allowing people to see themselves as good decision makers from the outset we're not saying you were stupid. And it's so easy for, for people who, who are on the other side to make that claim. You fool, right? Yeah. Nobody's going to believe that they're bad decision makers. Have you ever met anybody who you said, yeah, I'm not good at reading people. I don't. <laughs> I'm bad. I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm always making mistakes. You're very rarely. People want to believe that about them. This allows them to continue to believe that about themselves because they simply didn't have the information that's now available. And good decision makers use all of the information. Yeah. I want to go down a, a, a slightly different tack on this. And it's it's one of the things that I just find very disheartening. And I'm not sure if there's anything we can do about it. But it, it goes to news media and, and the way that news media presents information. For instance, um, you know, they often lead with the the negative and the shocking. So, for instance, there was a recent article that came out that talked about millions of people are not getting their second vaccination right. shot, right? right. Exactly. When in fact, it was 8%. Exactly. There was 92% of the people that were. And yes, it was truthful. There are millions when you look at that. But if they would have just framed that as, you know, 92% of everybody is getting their vaccination, that would have been a better message to send, but I don't think from a media it would have garnered as much 
attention and their incentives on this are to get quick throughs on their website or readership for their, their paper or their news television show. So what can we do? Is there anything that we can do to, I hate to use the word nudge, but to nudge or to influence, probably a better word with talking with you, about what we, you know, how the news media handles this? Yeah, and I think that you've hit it right on the nose here that, in fact, there was a newspaper headline that I cut out of my local newspaper here in the Phoenix area. And I had sent a letter to the news people saying exactly what you just said, Kurt, that, look, the... You've been publishing all this information about uh, so many people are uh, refusing to take it. It's 8%. And the next week, the headline was, the great majority of people continue to get their second shots. Only one in 12 don't, Ah. was the subhead. They took my advice. So they listen. They listen. Now, you know, I haven't seen it on the, the major news networks uh, yeah. because they don't listen to me there. But as a, <laughs> a local, they listen to me here. And that's what we have to do as a concerted effort. We all have to be saying, look, you just how you can how you construct the frame. Right. Is crucial as to what people think is most important. I think the last time we talked, uh, I mentioned this is. I live in Arizona where there's the National Petrified Forest Park. And uh, there's a sign there at the entrance to the park that says, so many people are taking wood from the forest, petrified wood shards and crystals, that it's endangering the existence of the forest. Well, it turns out it's only (laughs) 2.9%. But they don't say that. They say, so many people are doing this. Well, the park gets almost a million visitors a year. So they were right. They just framed it in a way that my graduate student who told me about this sign said that he was there at the entrance with his fiance looking at this in piece of information before they entered the park. And he described his fiance as the most honest person he had ever known in his life. She had never borrowed a rubber band or a paper clip she didn't return. Right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> They're standing in front of the sign, and he said, before I finished reading it, I felt her elbow in my ribs, and she said, we better get ours, too. <laughs> wow. Wow. So what was it about that sign that could turn this scrupulously honest young woman into an environmental criminal (laughs) who's looting a national treasure. (laughs) It was the power of social proof grossly mispurposed the way the media is doing it. It turns out there were only 2.9% of people who were stealing you just had to say that. You had to minimize rather than normalize the undesirable behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Keep our park like most people that visit, you know, something yes. along those lines, right? Keep our or, park beautiful like most people. Yes. Or we used, actually, we did a study there where we showed that that sign 
at the entrance. If you put it in front of paths where we had salted it with bogus pieces of petrified wood to see whether people would steal, if that sign was at the front of a path, it tripled theft. Oh my gosh. If, but we had another sign that halved theft. This sign said, if even one person takes a piece of wood, it undermines the integrity of the forest. Mm. Essentially, that was the message. Show, so instead of showing on the first sign three people stealing, it had this one person stealing the wood. So that was where the idea of recommending that we minimize and marginalize undesirable behavior honestly, rather than normalizing it or legitimizing it with these kinds of statements that are true, but misleading. Bob, you studied with some tremendously uh, successful researchers, Stanley Schachter, in, in your early days, uh, along with, was it Jerome Singer, came up with the, the two-factor uh, theory of emotion. Big, big contributions. Uh, you were influenced by John Thibault. Yes. These are, you know, really, really great research. And you took their work farther. You stood on their shoulders and you have gone beyond all that. And I'm wondering, as you peer into the future and you still have close associations with grad students and with, with people who are, are just developing, just getting started in the field, do you have any thoughts about where research might go? Where where could the next generation take the work that they're standing on, the shoulders hmm. of your shoulders? So I would add to that, Chet Insko, who was my major professor at UNC Chapel Hill, those three people really forged an amalgam of, of what is my research approach. But I would say there are two arenas that have big gaps within the social influence domain anyway, resistance and persistence. Hmm. We really need to study not just what convinces people to say yes, but what causes them to deflect or reject and resist information because we live in a, a world of misinformation now. Yeah, I mean, people are just lying to us. How do we equip people with the ability to recognize and resist? So that's one, resistance. Persistence, this is the regrettable secret of persuasion science. We don't study the durability of the changes that we enact in people. We don't look to see how they uh, stay uh, in place or whether they stay in place and what are the circumstances that allow them to stay in place. And in the latter case, by the way, that's the one that I think is the biggest, because I think what we have typically done in the laboratory or even the field experiment is to take a snapshot and we're not, we're not clear, we're not confident that the change we've enacted doesn't just snap back after mm. the situation changes and uh, whatever procedures or practices we were employing are no longer there. We really need to, to do that. 
is there a reason that you think that that research hasn't been done? Is it just too difficult? Longitudinal studies obviously go, you know, take longer. There's more money involved in various different pieces of it. But what any any reasons why those two areas are lacking from your perspective? Well, I, I think it is convenience. It's, mm. it's the amount of resources involved, the amount of time involved, and what the incentive structure is to conduct research, collect data, and publish, where those other approaches, the field approaches, the, the, the approaches that require uh, observing over time, well, you're not finished <laughs> until that time has elapsed. And if you really yeah. want to make an impact, it's got to be, well, what about not just next month? How about six months later? How about a year later? Well, that's really impressive. You could show that. But that takes an extra year <laughs> just to collect the data, and your uh, resume is not benefiting. So people in, who are in, in junior positions, you know, uh, young assistant professors and so on, that's a luxury that we're not allowing them to have given the incentive structure. Yeah. Yeah. To follow up on that, do you have any general advice? It's just thinking about this sort of the future thing. What about the present? Are there is there any advice that you would want to share with listeners about what they could do with the principles today? Well, here's a piece of advice <laughs> that I gave to uh, one of my colleagues has a, a teenage son, just barely teenaged, becoming an adult. And he asked me, so... If you were to give him one piece of advice that would incur, that would, would produce the benefits of a wise approach to social influence, what could I tell him that was easy enough, it was practical enough to do, it wasn't something that required doing a study or anything? And here's what I told him is, I would recommend that you advise him to go into any new situation with people he doesn't know and expect the best of them mm. and the best from them there. Now, that's not people who you know are tricky or deceptive. or anything. No, but a new situation where you, you don't know those people, expect the best of them. It allows you to be generous with them. And that generosity has two very powerful positive effects on what happens within those relationships. First of all, people like you more for being generous with them by the liking rule. But there's, there's the rule of reciprocity. They're going to be generous in return for having received that generosity. Not gonna, they're going to like you, and they're going to give it back. And now you have two people who like one another, who want to exchange benefits and resources and advantages with one another. I don't know how it gets better than that. It reminds me, we just interviewed John Levy, who's done a lot of work on social influence and various different pieces. And he talked about the same thing. He's talked about, look, you, you got to lead with generosity. That's the very first <laughs> thing. If you want to ever build connections with people, lead with generosity. And then it also reminded me of the, your last little reader's comment in, in the book, which, by the way, I love these reader's notes that you have added in. They are absolutely fantastic. But it was this this Robert from Arizona, I believe he was talking about and bringing up this idea of, of some you know salesperson saying, hey, this is the last TV here. And you could have taken the, the thing, oh, he's just trying to 
you know, fool me. Yeah. But you want to tell that story? It's just a little fun story. Yes. I, I was in a appliance shop. I was looking for something else, actually, but I saw a big screen TV at a, at a great price. It was on sale and it was very highly rated by consumers reports. So I was standing in front of it and looking at it. And the salesman came up and said, I see you're interested in this set at this price. I can see why it's a great deal, but I have to tell you, it's our last one. <laughs> no, I, I know about the scarcity principle, right? But my hands started to shake. <laughs> oh, no, you're, you're, you're feel, were you being played? Did you feel I, like? I, I, I knew that the scarcity principle was operative here. Yes. And I didn't know whether I should believe him or not, because a, a few years ago, Best Buy employees were caught doing this, using yeah. this strategy where they would say it's our last one. People would buy it. They'd go to the storeroom, put another one on the shelf, and <laughs> use the, the same tech. And then he said, I live in, in Phoenix, and he said, I just got a call from a woman from Scottsdale who said she's likely to come by this afternoon to buy it. Wow. I'm supposed to be the godfather of influence. <laughs> yes. 20 minutes later, I'm wheeling out of the shop <laughs> with this thing in my cart because I'm human. You know? And the, the truth is when scarcity is real, yeah, I want to know that. I want that guy to tell me that. He's not my adversary by using the scarcity principle when it's genuinely true. If he didn't tell me and I had gone home to think it over and come back that afternoon or that, that evening, and he said, oh, sorry, it's gone. It was our last one. Yeah. I was, what? What's wrong with you, man? You didn't, <laughs> you didn't tell me it was the last one? You didn't inform me properly about the principles of influence that genuinely <laughs> steer people correctly when they're true? What? <laughs> so I bought it. Anyway, I went back the next day to see <laughs> if that space on the shelf was filled with another version or it was empty. It was empty. So huh? here's what I did. I went back to my office and I wrote a very positive review of that shop and particularly of this salesperson. And if it had been filled with another set that he got from the you know the storeroom i would have written a very negative review about that shop it it's it's incumbent on us to sting people who counterfeit our shortcuts to good decision making who fabricate the presence of one or another of these principles in the situations where we're dealing with them and and we should comment favorably on those people who informed us properly about whether there's true scarcity, whether there's true authority voices who recommend this thing, whether there's true popularity, whatever the principle is, those people are, are to be, it's not just ethically acceptable to use the principles under those circumstances. It's ethically commendable. Mm. They're informing us into assent instead of tricking or coercing us. Yeah. I like this idea of expecting the best, but then verifying. Yeah. It's kind of like trust, but verify, yes, right? There's yes. this like, yes, expect the best of people. Think that they have their best interest in, at heart. That's going to lead to much better outcomes in the vast majority of times. But verify. And if you find out that it isn't, call those people out because that ruins it for everybody. 
Exactly. It isn't just that you fail to ever do business with that person again. You should. You know, I'm not a pugnacious person by by nature, but I really feel that I'm in a battle with those kinds of people and they deserve to be disarmed. <laughs> yep. Yeah. For using these uh, strategies so dishonestly. And so we have to do more than just in a one-on-one basis deprive them of our business. We have to go online and say here's what just happened to me. Yeah. On their site, you know, on their website when we review the place, make that known. Yeah. Uh, and then that that will help curtail that kind of behavior. Yeah. I can see Tim is jonesing on some music questions. I can oh, tell. Yeah. I, I I can just see it in his eyes. So go for it, Tim. Several years ago, Bob, when we first met, you extolled the virtues of Aretha Franklin and talking uh-huh. about how you love to walk on stage with with her song Think and how it was like the perfect priming little tool to cue the audience. And since then, you've become a songwriter yourself. <laughs> you, you are now a lyricist with those scientists in France worried about raising the chance a guitar would prompt a wee to a stranger's startling plea. You are a songwriter. What prompted you to <laughs> jump? And, and yeah. I, if I remember correctly, you said you were not a musical guy as a, as a child. No, no talent. Okay. Zero. <laughs> kind of a big change to go from that to publishing your work like this. Well, you know, I read the research that inside the boundaries of this concept of unity, it turns out that one way we can arrange for people to feel at one with us, to feel in resonance with us, is through music. Because of the rhythm and meter and rhyme very often that brings us all in tune with this message very often in, that we get in, in song. And so I was sort of tongue-in-cheek trying to explain the results of a study that had been done in France in which the researchers had an attractive young man walk up to a single young woman walking in a shopping mall and say, excuse me, I think you're very pretty. Would you give me your phone number so I could call you for a date later? And he was carrying one of three things. Nothing, a gym bag, or a guitar case. And he got twice as many phone numbers as the Uh, other two (laughs) when he was carrying a guitar case. I love it. And that's what those researchers in France found. Phone numbers more than doubled when music was part of the the set of associations that these young women were making about dates. It's, It's just the case that romance is associated with music. And so just carrying a guitar case. And it made no rational sense. Tim, I'm sorry to have to say this, but the economic prospects of getting together with a musician (laughs) in a romantic relationship are dim. All right, Bob, I want, I want to, Tim tells the story and I just want to, I want to get your thought on this because he tells the story about when he was in college and playing in the bands and he was up there and, you know, 
woman would come up and she'd like, hey, Tim, come over here. And, and then she'd hand him a piece of paper and say, can you give this to the drummer or was it the bass player? I can't remember. <laughs> the bass player. It was the, the bass ba- player. The bass player. So is, is there an element of comparison and contrast? On, and so- <laughs> <laughs> but, but there was none with this one musician walking up to one woman in a shopping mall. That's there, what I was There missing. was no muscle-bound drummer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Tim needed to be a solo artist. There exactly. You know. I needed to play solo. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um Bob, we are so grateful for your time and your conversation. It's always a blast to to talk to you. And so huge congratulations also on on the new book. Just fantastic. We're Thank it's you. a must read. I'm so gratified to hear you say that because I know you you read a lot of books. You guys you guys look at a lot of books. We do. And it is absolutely fantastic. And again, thank you for your time and your insights and just for everything that you've done. I mean, this is you are truly the the godfather of influence. And, uh, you know, I think in that Nobel laureate uh, sandwich, I think there's going to be a at some time, there's going to be a third layer there that will, you know, match up with the other two that you were on stage with at the BSPA. So congratulations on the book and everything else. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, this was it was great. It's always fun. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Bob, have a free flowing conversation, and talk about whatever comes into our unity brains, our brains of one. We are of one, Tim. You and me, we have a unity together. You you can influence me. I can influence you because all those barriers are broken down. How about that? I am one with you. You are one with me. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so philosophical, but it, it was great. It was so great to be able to talk about the seventh principle And of course, to actually revisit some of the others. But unity is a big deal, especially in our times today. We're seeing it more and more, even though his, I think his research started on it many years ago. Yeah, I know we've we've had different conversations with him about this through as long as we've known him. And he's definitely done work on this for a while. So, but bringing it together especially in this day and age uh, with, and I'm thinking of our political environment specifically is fantastic. Unity is a big, big deal. Yeah. And I love this idea and I love how he is very clear that we need to see them as one of us and not just similar to each other. So that this idea of unity is that you are part of this tribe and that you are one with the other person who is doing that influence or you they see you as one of them if you're doing the influence on them. That is key. It isn't just liking them. It isn't just that we are similar, that you and I both, uh, you know, I have lost all my hair and you're, you know, on my way, have a a receding hairline. (laughs) So you're similar to me, but you are not one with me yet on the bald head. (laughs) See, so it's, that's the difference that we have with that. That being said, I love this idea that he talks about that being one of us is different than being like us and that that breaks down many of these other barriers to influence. And this is the part that I just think is fascinating is that we trust those people more. We like those people more 
We yeah. cooperate with those people more and yeah. we say yes to those people more than if they do not have that. If they're just similar, we we don't have that. We don't, those barriers aren't broken down and those pieces of the puzzle are not part of it. Yeah, and there's all kinds of positive aspects about that. There's really wonderful things that come from that because then we have some very natural, positive, influential things that happen when we feel like we are part of that tribe. When I am one with with the tribe, when I'm and when I see you as being part of the same thing that I am part of. We're not just similar, but we're part of the same thing. But before we started recording, you started talking about the potential negative influences, the potential negative aspects to this, well, which I thought was really interesting. Because Bob brought this up, right? He brought up this idea about blue lies, this idea that we're more willing to lie. He writes about that in the new edition, right? These blue lies, these lies that, how does he say it? But there are blue lies that have component of each sort. They're designed to harm and to help simultaneously, but with different groups. So this idea that we're more likely to allow a lie by somebody in our in-group to go ahead and not call them out on it and actually even maybe even just believe that lie because it helps out our group identity and it helps us out even if it's harmful to others particularly if it's harmful to others it's this right i own the libs or you are a whole you know a, a horrid conservative you know fascist somebody you know and that's not the case but we believe those those stories that get told more likely because of this element of unity. And I think that can be really negative. There's a big oh, yeah. negative aspect of this tribalism that is pervasive here. It's going to be very powerful. And we were talking a little bit earlier about how going from an in-group of I'm not just like you, but I am with you, I am of you, to being outside of that probably doesn't take you into a neutral zone. It takes you into a you're my enemy zone, right? It's, it's going to be a dramatic change if I was once perceived as you're part of my tribe to wait a minute, wait, a minute, you're defecting. And I, I think we're seeing that right now. Again, we're recording this in the middle of May in 2021. Liz Cheney has just been ejected from the number three seat in the House of Representatives for power because she pushed back on one major issue. And mm -hmm. by pushing back on one major issue, she went from being someone who, and by the way, she has a hugely conservative voting record. Her whole career is extremely conservative in her voting record. But she pushed back on one issue, and now she went from being deeply ensconced within the group to being out. Like they want her voted out of office, she's been stripped of her role. Big outgroup kind of thing. Now she's the enemy all of a sudden, not just a neutral party. And there's lots of that example going on today, particularly in the GOP, where, you know, people who are pushing back on the idea that Donald Trump won in this lie that is going on about, oh, that was all this craziness going on and that election was a fraud that has been disproven over and over and over. And yet we see these people, as you said, that push back if you're inside the or uh, inside the tribe and you push back on it, you get censored. You get pushed out, and all of a sudden you're, yep. you know, it's you're pushed out of the tribe, which is really scary. And I think that's part of the reason that people don't do that because they're afraid of being pushed out. It, and we didn't talk about this with Bob, but I thought this was an just an interesting thought experiment. I don't know if this is true, but I I would guess that it would. So this is just conjecture on on my part, but. 
you know, the reciprocal of the positive that happens for people that are inside your group that he talks about this idea that you're more trusted, more liked, we cooperate more and we say yes more. Well, if you're in the out group now, even if you had been in the in group before, and you might even have a relationship with that person, you may like that person, but they are in the out group now. I think that the reciprocal of those positives could happen, that you now don't trust that person anymore, that you don't like that person as much, that you do not cooperate with that person, and you definitely don't say yes to that person. And that is scary when we think about the negative power of that and how that influences the way that we operate in this world. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't have anything else to say about that. I think that was, <laughs> that was again. Well, and there's, uh, yeah, I think, I think to that point, I don't know what else we can say about it yeah. except for maybe understanding it, maybe understanding that there is this power of unity and that it, it acts in a way that is at the subconscious level. And again, I don't want to say that knowing is going to change our behavior, but maybe knowing will help. Maybe we can take action. Maybe we can build in systems in order to help protect ourselves. Because as much as I would like to change all of my Republican friends and uh, you know big Trump fans, I, I doubt that I will be able to influence them. I'm not of their tribe. You, you can certainly keep exchanging salmon recipes with them, though. Yes. You, know, you can you can still have a relationship with them. Can play golf right? with them. I can yeah. go to Timberwolves games with them. We can have really good conversations. They're good people for the most part. I just disagree with them on this one aspect. <laughs> how, about Sorry, just, uh, how about they're just good people? <laughs> they don't have to be for the good most people. part. I need to qualify that. I, I don't um, know. Because I disagree with them. And, and, no, sure. they're good people. They are good people. But where I see this working, and actually you just pointed this out, right, is this idea that we fall prey to this ourselves. Yes. I just did. I just placed people in a different category because they are in a different political sphere than I fall into. And, yep. and thus I said, you know, they're not, you know, I had to qualify the good people part. That's horrible. That is really horrible. I didn't if do we that. Think about you that. did that. I yeah. did this. I did this. But, <laughs> no, just, but knowing that even right? as I mean, we were just talking about this and I did it myself. It, it, so that's the difficulty of, of this, but right. maybe if we can put some things in, maybe we can have good friends who call us out when we do stupid shit like this, like you did. Thank you. And that can be a, a, a blessing. That can be something that we can hopefully take out of this research and build for a more positive, better world overall. So, yeah. yeah. which leads into, I think the next piece that I wanted to talk about at least was this idea of the application of these principles and all Definitely. the cool stuff that Bob put into a the new book but that we we even talked about some of the stuff which you know want to groove on yeah uh, bob took action right he knows when he was describing the specific situation of seeing the headline in the local paper about how millions of people aren't getting vaccinated and he just responded with a letter to the editor i wonder how scathing that was actually i'd be kind of curious or if it was just because he's such a nice person, you know, I, he's very diplomatic, but he said, wait a minute, 90 plus percent of the people are 
doing the vaccination thing. So let's focus on the positive and create a social proof aspect around this. And it worked. Yeah. Only one in 12 people are not doing this, right? As opposed to the other aspect of it. And I yeah. love that. So what we knew, what we need is, is we need Bob to write letters to every news station, <laughs> news, uh, TV uh, news thing, and get them all to be changing the way that they frame this. But we, we had this conversation with, with Christina Bicchieri early on when it was, everybody is in lockdown and what were the news media outlets doing? They're having these reporters on the street and they're showing people walking around. Right. The very few people that are walking around, but you see those people and that's what you see on the news. You don't see the 98% of people right. that are still in the house. Yeah. Yeah. So instantly we start to think, well, they're out. Why can't I be out? As opposed to showing a completely empty street, 100% empty, or do the interviews from inside. But this is this is great. And Bob took action because this the principles are actionable because you can actually do something with them. You can apply them in the real world. And and I think that to to that point, everybody that listens to this podcast, if you have a local newspaper, you have a local television show, if we inundate those places with letters, with emails saying, hey, I noticed that you framed this millions of people are not getting their second vaccination. You need to emphasize the positive. And here are some of the, the reasons, because what you're doing is lending, adding into the storyline that people have that this is horrible, when in fact, you want to talk about how good we're doing and really uh, build on that social proof. And I think if we all do that, you know, it's what's that? Is it the Arlo or, or Guthrie song, uh, uh, Allison's Restaurant? You know, where he Arlo Guthrie. Know, if, yes. if one person goes in to the the you know office and starts singing Alice's Restaurant, they think you're crazy. You know what's going on? If two people, you know, anyway, it goes on and on and on, and then it becomes it's a movement and it's different things. We can make a movement. We can make that happen. I love that. I didn't even know that you knew who Arlo Guthrie was. So that. <laughs> Just learn something new. Hey, one of my favorite all-time songs that my kids gets get pissed at me. The thing is, is about you know I'd rather have a pickle, or I'd rather ride my motorcycle than to have. What, how's that going now? God, I, I don't want a pickle. I just want to ride, ride my, my motor, motorcycle. Yeah, the motorcycle. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to wow. die. I just want to ride my motorcycle. Yeah, cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Wow. Way to go. I wanted to talk about, he was talking about areas to study moving forward. Yes. And I got so excited when he talked about persistence and resistance. First, it's such clever naming. I think about Rohit Bhargava, right? When he when, when he talked about how important it is for us to name things in a meaningful and memorable way, Bob's naming that right up front, persistence and resistance, which is fantastic. But I, I just love the idea of what can we do to inoculate ourselves against persuasion? That isn't helping us, right? Social media, right? That's that's like the number one thing. Stop it, right? Be intentional. Change the context. We can do things to create a, a, a greater sense of resistance against things that aren't going to help us in our lives, especially the, the power of social influence. Right. When we think about this, I mean, it's hard. 
right? It's hard to inoculate ourselves against this, particularly as yeah. we think about social media. There are these elements of belief echoes, you know, hey, yeah. once we're exposed to misinformation, it's very hard to get that misinformation out of our brains, right? There's the backfire effect that if you, you know, people push up against the misinformation too much, it actually reinforces that belief in the misinformation, confirmation bias, there's mere exposure effects. So all of that stuff is happening to us. And all of it is there. And so how do we move forward knowing that, knowing that there's misinformation out there? And with confirmation bias, we don't always even realize that it's misinformation. And so we right. buy in hook, line, and sinker into this stuff as much as other people do. And we just don't see it. And then we push back when people point it out because it's, it's again, our, that piece. So how do we do that? And I, I know that like, Twitter and some of the others are doing different things where that's like, this hasn't been proven or make sure was it Twitter that said you haven't, you haven't clicked through to, to read the article. Are you sure you want to forward this on? You know, I think there's yeah. some, there's some pieces that are getting into creating helping, some friction, helping, yeah. yeah, lessen the, the viralness of some of this misinformation and, and may, that might help, but what can we well, do? Be intentional change the context. Maybe you have a, a timer that says, I'm only going to be on social media for four hours today. And you set the timer and you just say, I'm only going <laughs> to, or okay, maybe something more reasonable, but you know, this, this is part, let me say this, this is part of my day is when I, I, I don't set a timer, but I do have a limit for how much time I'm going to spend on Twitter mm -hmm. because it can be the doom scrolling. And so unless I, I actually have some kind of a boundary I changed the context and I just said, there's a boundary on this and, and it doesn't think, matter how much is out there. I think that's great. But I also go, so even if I only look out there for 10 minutes a day, that 10 minutes I'm being bombarded with misinformation. So how do I inoculate myself against that misinformation that I see, even if it is limiting the amount of it, I'd still get it into me. Right. I, I think, uh, is it the, I think the university of Washington has uh, developed a course called calling bullshit. And I love the, just the name of that, but basically it's to help people identify and resist fake information. And so that's a, that's a cool piece of, of this that, and, and I don't know what those pieces are. I'm sure Bob probably, we probably should have pushed him a little bit more because that would have been cool. But that's, I think it's a really big piece. The persistence piece is another yep. cool aspect. The other side of, of this. Yep. Yeah. Which is again, look. The research that Bob, and he talked about this, is look, I can influence you, and all the research that we do shows that it influences you in the moment of having that that study or the the intervention, the nudge that we do work. But does that have long-lasting impact, or do I have to constantly utilize that social proof or that you know liking component do i all always have to use that principle or that nudge in order to maintain that or is there some part that once i have started to be influenced that hey i no longer have to have that once i start putting the towels up in the bathroom at the hotel so they don't get washed do i have to now have to have that you know, go to another hotel do i have to have that message up in the bathroom that he talks about yeah. in the first time we talked to him. Yeah. We, we have talked about uh, a couple of studies. Uh, one uh, nudges like the, the cafeteria setup where moving the cookies from the front of the, or, or near the checkout 
you know, to the back and to make it more difficult to get to reduces cookie consumption. But it doesn't necessarily reduce our desire for cookies. The fact that you moved your Oreos from the kitchen to the basement, that slowed down your Oreo cookie consumption. But did it actually stop you from liking Oreos a whole lot? No. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole different piece, right? How do right. we get at the underlying drives, desires that we have right. that are maybe not helping us in our long-term goals? And that uh, that's a that's a big piece. Yeah, I can put that, can build up the, the little nudge that says my Oreos are down in the basement, but wouldn't it be better if I just like, no, yeah, I'd rather just have a carrot, you know? Or you, or you stop buying Oreos altogether. Yeah. Or, but, well, but, but, so this is the thing, right? It's, yeah, I could stop buying Oreos altogether. That would be a nudge if I still liked Oreos. But if I actually feel like, no, a carrot is better. I would prefer a carrot than an Oreo. Yeah. Which I don't know how the hell anybody would do that, but that <laughs> that's beside the point, right? Well, there are but, people. But if, there sure are people that, that yeah. are doing that. And maybe if I could get to yeah. there, then I wouldn't even have to. I could have the Oreos up in the pantry and it's fine because I no longer have that need or that desire or that dopamine release when I see them that says, ooh, want, eat. Um, it says, yeah. oh, that's good. Maybe I'll have that for dessert. I'd rather have a carrot right now or some other healthy you know, snack. Anyway, I think that is an interesting whole line of research that would be fantastic to do all right tim what else lastly we've got to just talk about his, uh, his advice to go into any situation and expecting the best of the people that we're engaging with yeah and this is right we hear this echoed john levy has, yeah. has talked about this uh recently benevolence such an important aspect in life and it's hard with the out of tribe people Right. Mm. It's it's really hard with the out of tribe experience to encounter someone and think, oh, they're coming from another perspective. It's like when I'm when I'm driving down the freeway and somebody cuts me off instantly, it's like they're an asshole. You know, <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. They're a bad driver. But when I cut somebody off, it's like, oh, I didn't real, I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry. That was, you know, we the fundamental we are, attribution error. Right. It, it comes there up it is. over and over in this this arena and this idea that. We start with this expectation of people to be good and to have our best intent, this generosity, this benevolence, right? We talked about this with Christian Hunt on the our clubhouse just yesterday, you know, this whole concept of living life fuller because you're generous. And so you're generous from this perspective that you, you A, expect the best of others, and B, that you give without necessarily this idea of needing to get something in return, that you're just being generous because that's what you're going to do. And John Levy talked about this idea that when we do that, as and Bob said this, right? People like us more. And if we do act in a generous, authentic way, they're more likely to actually reciprocate. And so it's that not the expectation of that, but the likelihood of that happening is it going to be better. But I just think it's a much better way. Instead of having to go, are you going to screw me over? Everybody that I meet, everybody that's in a new situation, if I meet them, are they going to screw me over or no? I would much rather go in with the mindset that says, you're going to be a good person. 
I don't care if you are in different political tribe than me. I don't care if you like, you know, the Chicago Bulls as opposed to the Minnesota Timberwolves, right? And you know what is really ironic about this is that the golden rule, which is universal in virtually every major religion, is about treating other people in the way that you would like to be treated. So if we if I see the driver cutting me off and I'm thinking they're an asshole, but then when I cut someone off, what I'm wanting is a little bit of grace. Yeah. How about if we just extend a little bit of grace to the driver that just cut me off? Because maybe they didn't see me. Maybe they are an asshole, but I don't know. So why not just give them some grace? That That's my editorial for the day. So much more succinct and better than mine. <laughs> and with that, people stay on for our bonus track and groove idea for the week. Thanks. This is Kurt with your bonus track and groove idea for the week. Our conversation with Bob, as usual, was filled with insight and laughter. It amazes us that after 40 plus years of groundbreaking research and work, Bob is still out there breaking the mold and bringing new ideas to the forefront. Bob talked about how the rewrite happened because there was just so much new information out there, but that the underlying principles were still sound and valid. The idea, as his grandfather's quote so eloquently summarized with, if you want things to stay the same, things are going to have to change around here, is at the heart of this new edition. We talked about the seventh principle, unity, which helps us understand the power of tribes and much of what is going on in our society these days. Bob talked about how being one of us is different than being like us, and that being one of us lowers all the barriers to influence and who can tap into it. When we feel this oneness, we trust more, we like more, we cooperate more, and we say yes more. While this is powerful, it also has its downside as we wrap our identity in this unity and thus are more willing to feel that lies, particularly blue lies that support our tribe, are okay if they come from within our own tribe. We also talked about how Bob's research can help us in overcoming vaccine hesitancy with the idea that we can use this power of unity, but also the idea of the presentation of the convert communicator. The idea that says, I was like you, but then I found out this new information and that that new information has changed my mind. And that can be very powerful. Bob also talked about how he sees two gaps in the social influence research. First, that we need research in how we can resist influence, particularly in these days of rampant misinformation and outright lies. And second, that we need more research in persistence. We need to look to see if persuasion lasts for longer than the snapshot of most of the research that has been done on it. Finally, he left us with some great advice that we need to approach the world with an open heart and mind and expect the best of people. This leads to trust and to generosity. We couldn't agree more. He also states that when we do find those rare exceptions, that we hold those people to the fire and make sure they don't get away with being a liar, cheat, or just an asshole. The groove idea for this week is to take Bob's advice to heart. Go into a new situation with a positive expectation and see what happens. As always, we'd love to hear what you experience. And with that, we want to thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this episode as much as we did. And if you did, please, please share it. Spread the love. 
and then go out and find your groove.